Good morning, Grace. It's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Uh, somebody asked me this this week how I was doing, and I said lonely. <laughs> uh, I am an extrovert. I know that those of you out there that are extroverts can relate um, to what I'm going through, and I know that you guys are all going through it as well. Uh, but at the same time, as Haley said, it's good to be together even in this way. Uh, hopefully soon. Um, hopefully soon we're hearing that things are going to start moving uh, back towards normal. And so uh, I'm really hopeful that at some point in the next few weeks we'll be able to at least gather in, in groups of people and do this instead of just in our own homes. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are as well. This morning uh, we are going to be jumping back into... Uh, our mini-series uh, as a part of our greater big series taking place over the course of the year on just, just walking through the Bible as a whole. Uh, you guys are doing it in your readings, and we're doing it on Sunday mornings as well. Uh, we took a break uh, and did the last four weeks, we did the Symbols of Christ. Um, we did that as we kind of surrounding Easter. We did the symbol of communion, the symbol of the cross, the symbol of the empty tomb, and then last week, if you were with us, we did the symbol of baptism. If you remember, right before that, so going back a month, uh, we were in a, a mini-series on the life in exile as we walked through the book of Daniel. Um, and so hopefully even just me saying that life in exile, life in exile, uh, kind of trips your brain back a little bit to what we were talking about. I'm going to do a, a bit of recap right now before we launch into Daniel chapter 3. Uh, week one of this mini-series, we talked about Second uh, Chronicles 36, and we just uh, covered that chapter that basically explained why and how the nation of Israel went into exile. What happened, what physically happened, and, and that led to them being carted off uh, to a foreign country. And then we looked at Jeremiah 29 that kind of that overlays Second uh, Chronicles 36, um, and Jeremiah's instruction as to how they were to respond in exile. And so we get this, uh, this idea that there's to seek the good of the city. They're in the city for the city. That's where that phrase comes from. And that while they're in exile, they're to actually seek the good of the, the cities that they're living in, the people that they're a part of, and that their blessing would come through the blessing of those nations that they're a part of as they are living in exile, as exiles, in foreign countries. And so then uh, the week after that, we, uh, again, with Jeremiah 29, kind of as this backdrop, uh, we looked at Daniel chapter 1 and, and, uh, and then um, looked at Hebrews 11 as well. But Daniel chapter 1, just this, this picture of uh, Daniel and his three friends as they're taken into exile and educated in Babylon, um, kind of this... Uh, this uh, mild resistance to to the dietary laws uh, or the dietary um, customs of Babylon and them wanting to be faithful to the law, faithful to the, the covenant that they made with God in their, the way that they ate. And so we covered that story and how um, that resulted in, their faithfulness to God resulted in their um, prospering. And then we looked at uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and saw how that isn't always the case, Right. Uh, faithfulness to what God is asking us to do quite often ends badly. Uh, we see that in many places throughout Scripture and in, in human history. And then the week after that, we looked at Daniel chapter 2. And if you remember that, that was uh, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this giant statue and uh, commands that his wise men and his uh, sorcerers and his teachers tell him not only what the interpretation of the dream was, but he actually refused to tell them the dream itself. He said, I want you to tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what it means. Uh, and Daniel was the only person that could do that. He prayed and asked God and God showed him what the dream was and showed him um, the meaning of the dream. This, I, this dream that had a giant statue, Nebuchadnezzar's head was the head of the statue. It was made of gold. And then there was these different metals um, that went all the way down that represented different human kingdoms. And then there was this uh, the stone that rolled in, and the passage specifically says that it was a stone not cut by human hands. The stone rolls in, smashes the statue to bits, and then the stone becomes a great mountain, which represents the kingdom of God that lasts forever. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of this dream is that all these human uh, kingdoms come and they go, and ultimately they're all smashed by uh, 
what we now know as Jesus, the rock not cut by human hands, and his kingdom will last forever. And so there's kind of a backdrop of where we're at coming into today. Um, Each of these stories that we have covered um, kind of represents uh, what it looks like for us to to live in exile. And um, it's really interesting thinking about this uh, as, as an American and specifically during this time. So I'm hoping and hoping I, I, I'm really I'm really sure that that we're going to find some some strings that attach these stories to to where we live today. So I, I think this is going to be good. Daniel specifically is a book about this idea of exile and it offers hope to exiles because constantly in the book of Daniel, we're, we're pointed um, to the fact that our allegiance lies somewhere else, right? This giant mountain that grows out of this rock that becomes a kingdom that lasts forever. And so really, it's, a, it's all the stories of it, uh, in Daniel um, are talking about our identity. Uh, we we uh, identify as Americans. Uh, our brothers from other countries identify as citizens of those countries. But the thing that we have in common as followers of Jesus is that we are all citizens of his kingdom. And so it's important for us, whether, whatever nation we're a part of, it's important that we understand where our true identity, identity lies. And in times of hardship, um, where, our, where we see our identity bubbles to the surface. And so we're going to talk about that today. I think it's going to challenge us in some ways that may not be comfortable. Um, I'm going to give you an extreme example of like some weird nationalistic idolatry and then we're going to move forward because i think it's going to be helpful for us if you look at the nation of north korea and if you if you you know look up on wikipedia or any other maybe more legitimate source um, of information you can find some really interesting things um, and really horrific things about this country but one of the things i want to point out um uh I don't know exactly how many years I forgot when I looked some of this stuff up. Uh, one of their leaders, Kim Il-sung, um, is actually worshipped. In fact, they actually uh, renumbered human history from the time of his birth. Um, he has lots of miraculous qualities like turning pine cones to bullets and walking on water, uh, doing all different kinds of things. They have their own Ten Commandments. Um, I'm just going to give you a couple of them. Number one, we must give... Uh, are all in the struggle to unify the entire society with the ideology of the great leader Kim Il-sung. Um, we must make the great leader comrade Kim Il-sung's revolutionary ideology our faith and make his instruction our creed. We must make absolute the authority of the great leader comrade Kim Il-sung. Um, they worship this guy, even though he's been dead for quite a long time. And this is a place where Christians try to live and try to be faithful to what they're called to. I think in, um, I don't know exactly what the percentage of uh, Christians is in the, in the nation of North Korea, but it's incredibly low. They're incredibly isolated. And yet, these are followers of Jesus who are attempting to be faithful to Christ in a country that worships their leader. Now, if, if we take a step back for a minute and look at the exiles, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, I want us to keep this idea that we just like how ridiculous this sounds, what we just read about North Korea. Keep this in mind as we head into um, Daniel chapter 3. But before we get there, I just want to point this out. For Christians that live in a nation like North Korea, how unbelievably difficult it is. And I want to contrast this for a minute because this is important for us. Um, we as Americans struggle to read our Bible 15 minutes a day on our iPhone 11. Um, and if I can take something out of our present situation, um, we're struggling with our isolation. Now, I understand that there are legitimate reasons for struggling with the isolation, but for many of us, our struggle with isolation is quite simply our preference as individuals and how we like to live our life. Uh, and so if we can just take that for a minute and put it in some perspective as to what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through in some other countries. All right, now, um, Daniel chapter 3. Now, whether you live in America or whether you live in North Korea, whether you live in Somalia or Pakistan or Iran or any other country, Daniel chapter 3 
is for you. Daniel chapter 3 has a lot to say to us as Christians. Now, Daniel chapter 3, some of you are already there, right? It's been reduced to this story of um, don't obey uh, your worldly leaders, obey God. And this is um, extreme obedience, I guess, is the kind of the, the in the nutshell, uh, what typically is the truth that we take from Daniel chapter 3, but it's so much bigger. The story that we're about to read in Daniel chapter 3 is about two things mainly. It's about nationalism and it's about idolatry. Uh, so as we read this story and point out all these different things, I want to keep these things in mind, right? What we just read or what we just learned about North, this nation of North Korea. Daniel 3 is an expose of human idolatry and of national identity. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says this about Daniel chapter 3. It's about what happens when we elevate our way of life and stamp it with the divine authority and demand that others recognize it as well. I'm going to read that again because that's really important. Daniel 3 is about what happens when we elevate our way of life and stamp it with divine authority and demand that others recognize it as well. So, as we read that statement, we should think of North Korea, we should think of Nazi Germany, and in a lot of ways, if we're really honest, as followers of Jesus, we should think of America as well. Right? Now, let's 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 go right into right into this. When God's people find themselves, okay? If this is what Daniel 3 is about, elevating a national or a, a way of life, um, stamping divine authority to it and demanding that others do it as well. Okay, when, when followers of Jesus find themselves living in this kind of place, how should we respond? That's what we should take away from Daniel chapter 3. Now, let's go right to it. Uh, in verse 3, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, this is really interesting for a couple of reasons, but reason number one why this is interesting is we just finished, I mean, not for us, if in your reading, if you're reading through Daniel, you had just finished Daniel chapter 2. And we just talked about what happened in Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, same guy, has this dream. What's his dream of? A giant statue. And how did the dream end? That statue is crushed and the kingdom of God is set up that lasts forever. And so at the end of that, Nebuchadnezzar actually pays homage to Daniel's God, the, the God of Israel, and, and seemingly worships uh, the God of Israel. Turn the page to Daniel chapter 3, and here we have Nebuchadnezzar setting up this giant statue and demanding that people worship it. But we're not there yet. We'll get there. So he has a dream about a statue, and in the following chapter, he makes a statue. It's really interesting. Um, we don't know. Um, the assumption typically is is made that the that the statue is Nebuchadnezzar. Um, that might be true. It's more than likely true that um, the statue is of the Babylonian god Marduk. So it's an actual idol of a Babylonian god that they worshipped, probably. Um, and this is really interesting if you think like uh, if you think of a, a scene from a, a movie in Indiana Jones or, some, or something like that, this giant statue, right? 60 cubits, 90 feet high, built on, a, built on a mound, had a platform. We're talking a four-story building. This is a giant, giant statue, probably built of gold or stone and then overlaid with gold. This is huge, unbelievably impressive. Uh, and there's a lot of... Um, a lot of historical precedent for this kind of thing. If we think back through in Egypt, we have you know the Sphinx and all these other things. Uh, in, in Greece, um, there are lots of historical um, artifacts and historical writings talking about this kind of thing. So this isn't, this isn't something that was um, out of the ordinary in the ancient world. This wasn't original to Nebuchadnezzar. This was done in the ancient world. It was quite common. Now, nations would do this as a show of strength, wealth, and as symbols of their national identity. They would do it uh, at a gate or by a road or at the mouth of a harbor. So as people were coming into their city, as people were coming into their nation, they would recognize um, the, the wealth, the power, and the identity of their nation as they were coming in. Um, so again, we see this happening in Daniel chapter 3, right? This giant statue made as a 
uh, as an idolatrous symbol of their identity, their national identity, their national uh, power, their wealth, their superiority. Um, Can we think of some modern day examples of this? Again, I'm going to step on some toes here, but if we think about this idea of these um, monuments standing for national identity, um, a monument that stands to communicate a nation's values and strength and even suggest a superior way of life. Maybe somewhere in New York, maybe not made of gold, but of copper, 150 feet high. Lady Liberty with a torch of enlightenment holding a book of law standing over a broken chain. This is, right, the Statue of Liberty. This is symbolic. It's not something that we would um, physically bow down to and worship. But in many ways, as we look around us, we can see this as followers of Jesus who, who uh, claim that our ultimate identity is in the kingdom of God and in the person of Jesus. We can look around and we can see and maybe even recognize in our own hearts how our identity, our identity is shaped by this idea of freedom. And the idea that we have rights as people. Our identities as Americans are shaped by those values. And so we have to be very careful how we respond, particularly in times of crisis, um, because it shows us where our values lie. This is really interesting. As I studied, I was just talking with Jordan before we came on. I was, as I studied for this, um, this week, this, I mean, again, this was put in on a calendar six months ago. This wasn't something that I planned for this week because of what we're going through. And as I studied this week, I just was so shocked at how closely uh, what these guys are going through and what we're going through um, actually are tied together. Another one, Mount Rushmore, right? Four rulers, four presidents, um, like carved into a side of a mountain. Like For us, these are just monuments and things that uh, are, are special. But in the ancient world, these were things that, that people actually would bow down and worship. And so again, we don't, we don't think of our American way, our American identity as something that we worship. But when push comes to shove, it's important for us to understand where our identity lies, where our allegiance lies. Is it in the kingdom of God or is it the nation of America? These are important questions for us to ask. All right, back to um, back to Daniel chapter three. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. These lists are intentional, right? Every government official uh, in the nation was gathered to this. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So it repeats itself. Again, we know from biblical language that when something repeats itself, we should pay close attention. We're paying close attention to this because it basically demonstrates that, that everyone was there. This was important. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. So it wasn't just the Babylonian people. It was all the people that they had pulled together from all these other countries that they had conquered in many different languages. That when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, uh, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fire. So these people are all gathered together. There's this giant golden image, and they're told, when you hear the music play, you bow down. And if you don't, you'll die. Verse 7, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Everybody worshipped. They did what they were told. You see the imagery? There's a powerful leader setting up an image of national identity and national worship and demanding that everyone do the same. 
to the God of Israel that he bowed down to and paid homage to in Daniel chapter 2 is already forgotten. It was lip service that was being paid. And we see where Nebuchadnezzar's true allegiance lies and we see where the people uh, that he has gathered together, we see where their allegiance lies. Now, um, one of the dangers in talking about this kind of thing is that we can we can think like human governments are corrupt, human governments are bad. Uh, and that's not the case. I mean, yes, human go- governments always move in that direction. We see that constantly throughout history. Um, but human, govern- govern- human governing is actually something that's set up by God. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, when God is uh, ordering and creating the world, this is what he says in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is a picture of what it means for mankind to rule the earth. right? And that is done as, as humankind is spread over the earth. That's done through organized means. We are actually commanded to rule and to govern the earth. And this is really interesting. This is what it looks like for an image to rule, right? How did God create mankind? In his own image. God commissions our governing of the world. He gives that commissioning to us. Um, And then we see this later on in, in, in Ten Commandments. We see the same idea in Exodus 20. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Israel is commanded to never make a carved image of God or of any other lesser being that they would worship as God. Because it would be demeaning to God, but also because God has already created an image on the earth. Us, right? That's what we are. We are made in the image of God. We are the representation of God to the earth, right? So the Bible talks about this. Romans talks about this. Worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. Worshiping ourselves. Worshiping our own ideas, our own uh, national superiority, our own... ideas, our own opinions, all of these things are things that we can worship. And they are represented in, in, in created physical things, whether it be animals or things of our own making. God says, don't do that. Worship only me. Don't set up carved images. Worship only me. So this statue that Nebuchadnezzar is setting up is representing a, a distortion of the image of God. He's taking the true image of God, the the human form, and setting it up as an idol, as a God to be bowed down to and worshipped. The very thing that God asked us not to do. Now, um, this isn't the first time this has happened in this place. This is really key and really important. Babylon is also Babel. If we go back to Genesis chapter 11, um, this is actually the same region, the same area where that story happened. In Genesis 11, after the flood, um, humankind is, is multiplying and spreading. Not spreading. They're multiplying, but they're not spreading out over the earth. They're staying in one area. And in Genesis 11, it says this. Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for who? For ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is humanity discarding God in their attempt to achieve a name for themselves that reaches to heaven. This is the same story repeating itself through Nebuchadnezzar that happened in Genesis chapter 11. And hopefully, as we're talking about this, you guys can think back over human history and see this very thing played out again and again and again and again and again. We can see this playing out in our own hearts, if we're honest. We think about... um, our names, right? Like this patriarchal idea from yesteryear of like uh, wanting to have a son to, to carry on our family name, 
Uh, we could, like that's just a one small thing, but we think about this idea. Uh, we, if we stop and think about this idea, we can see it in our own lives. We're setting up human kingdoms, even in our own hearts, discarding God for our own ideas. All right, verse, verse 8, back to uh, Daniel chapter 3. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the hound, sound of the horn pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? This is a great question for Nebuchadnezzar to ask, given, again, what happened in Daniel chapter 2. Like he's completely forgotten what happened. He's completely disregarded it. And here he is demanding that these people worship the deity of his country, the deity that he has set up as ultimate or they will die. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he doesn't deliver, even if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So he, he gives them another chance. He says, okay, are you ready? The music's going to play. And they're like, no, 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 we don't, need, we don't need the music to play. We're not going to do it. You can do with this what you want. Our God's able to deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to serve your gods. Now, a lot, a huge amount of commentary has been written about this response. Um, and I want to look at their response and I want to use the two words that we've been kind of using. If you remember back a month, <laughs> if you remember back uh, to our first uh, three conversations about this idea of life in exile, we've talked about two words, syncretism and sectarianism, uh, as the two most common responses um, as Christians and as, as people groups to oppression. Uh, syncretism um, is just go along with the culture and hope for the best, right? We just join the stream, we join the current, and and hope that it takes us to where we want to go, or that it won't take us anywhere bad. Uh, and the opposite response is to step out of that current, to reject the current outright, and to say no, and to completely remove ourselves. Um, they do neither, right? They're like, again, part of the Part of the repetition that we saw at the beginning about who was called to this uh, vast meeting, they were all government officials. Right? So now we have these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are called to this, uh, to this place, who are ruling as government officials in exile. They've been taken from their homeland and they've been put... Uh, through some sort of means, they've proven themselves as worthy and have been put in positions of leadership. They are in the stream. They are in the cultural stream. And yet they're standing firm in their beliefs. They're not removing themselves from the cultural stream. They're in it, but they're standing firm. One of the other things that's really interesting is that uh, they didn't protest. They, did, they, they weren't outwardly protesting. Um, and they also didn't leave. Right? They're, they're not trying to sneak away. Um, they simply didn't do what was asked of them. 
because it, it violated a direct commandment from God, a commandment that we just read in Exodus chapter 20. They didn't protest. They were actually ratted out, right? <laughs> They're snitched on. These guys go, uh, in a, to be perfectly honest, a racially motivated um, uh, a racially motivated scene here where these men actually snitch them out to the king and say, hey, these Jews aren't doing what you're telling them to do. They're taking, there's probably all kinds of thought processes. They're taking the jobs of our countrymen, these outsiders. They're not, they're not conforming to our way of life. They don't live the way we want them to live. They don't speak our language. They don't eat our food. Uh, they're different, and so we don't like them. And they're in positions of influence, and we want to remove them, so we're going to rat them out to the king. That's obviously my interpretation of what's going on here. But we see other places in the book of Daniel where that actually is the case. Now, this is a picture of faithfulness in exile, right? We have syncretism, just jumping in the stream and going with it. We have sectarianism, which is we're removing ourselves from the cultural stream. We don't want to be a part of it. And then we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are neck deep in the cultural stream, but they're standing firm in the areas where they feel convicted that they need to stand firm. They took Babylonian names. They probably wore Babylonian clothes. They lived in Babylon. They were a part of this culture. And yet there were areas, as we've seen over the first three chapters of Daniel, where they stood firm in their faith. Not, in their, not just in their way of life. They stood firm in their faith. They stood firm in their allegiance to God as their ultimate authority and as their ultimate influence. We have to discern what compromises our identity as followers of Jesus. This is, the, this is one of the important questions that we have to answer. What compromises, our, what, what things in this culture that we live in will compromise our identity as followers of Jesus? And those are the areas where we need to take stands. And so that's, that's the difficult question, especially right now in what we're dealing with, is so many times, that, right? Because we're not spending time together, uh, we get our, uh, so much of what we get as far as information and social interaction takes place over the internet. So we look at the news and we look at social media. And it's heartbreaking a lot of times to watch Christians um, make these stands but the stands that they're making are in accordance with their identity as Americans. And not often enough do we see public stands based on our identity as Christians. Because they're not the same thing. Like that's the mistake that we've made as a nation, as, as Christians in America, is we have confused this idea of being uh, uh, allegiant and, and uh, faithful to God and being faithful to America and we've blended those things together and they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And so this is a tough question for every single one of us to ask and we are being asked to make these choices. What we see here is probably the most polite rebellion in history, right? They politely answer the king, we're sorry, we don't need to answer you. We're simply not going to do what you ask. We're not going to do it. Now, Speaking this way, making these stands, and this is important for us, to, if we're going to talk about this, we have to understand that making stands that, that line up our allegiance to God and only God at any cost almost always come with a cost, right? Always comes with a cost. Verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed, right? This is wordplay. He can't control himself, right? He loses his self-control against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is really interesting too. Like the wordplay here about his face changing is if, if in fact this statue is of, is of Nebuchadnezzar, right? All of a sudden, the face of the human man of Nebuchadnezzar, he can't control. So there's, there's a wordplay happening here that, that something has been set up that's not real. It's false. Doesn't, it doesn't hold up against reality. Okay, against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Um, again, the, this is, you know what, it doesn't really matter, but uh, heated seven times hotter basically means that the word seven is like a, like a number, or the number seven is like a number of completion. So basically what they're trying to say is it couldn't get any hotter than they made it. Like it was as hot as they could possibly make it. 
And then he ordered some of his mighty men from his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why does he need mighty men? Why, why not just a regular soldier? All of this stuff is like really important. Uh, to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. And these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and all their other garments. Babylonian clothing. And they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Now, we're going to pause. This is when national identity goes too far. When human life becomes expendable. Right? This is like a, a, like a flashing red light for us when we see national identity going to the point where human life is expendable. Now, we can think of historical examples of this really easily. Nazi Germany didn't get to the point of murdering millions and millions and millions of Jewish people overnight. It was a Jewish identity and a Jew, or a, it was a national identity that was propagated over years and years and years and built to that point. Also, if we can think about this again from a, an American perspective, we're a young country, but we have grown to the point where our American freedom and our American way of life is so important, has been so deified that, that our um, freedom of choice has been lifted above the sanctity of human life. And we will murder babies by the millions to preserve our American way of life, our choice, our freedom as individuals. When national identity grows to the point and is distorted to the point of human life being expendable, we know we have become like the Babylonians. We have become like Nazi Germany. We have become like North Korea in so many ways. And these are hard words for me to say because I'm an American and I love living in America, but we have to understand the state of the world that we live in. Back to Daniel chapter 3. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is really good stuff here. This is a pre-incarnate Christ, what we refer to as a theophany. And if you read through the Old Testament, you see this happening all throughout the Old Testament. We see it happening with uh, Abraham. We see it happening with Jacob. We'll come back to this. All right, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. He, he knows who the Most High God is. He learned about who the Most High God was in Daniel chapter through, Daniel chapter 2, excuse me, and he's being reminded of who the Jewish God is. And now he refers to him as the Most High God, just as he did a chapter ago. Come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together, like all the people that were there that had been gathered to, to worship this golden image, now gathered around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and saw that the fire had, had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Now, uh, since we're in quarantine, my wife and I have this new, um, we call it our, uh, our new date night, where we build a campfire in the backyard, and we put the kids to bed, and we go out and sit in the backyard around a campfire. And it's been really fun. But one of the things that, my, that we do when we go back in the house before we go to bed is take a quick shower. Why? Because we stink of campfire. And nobody wants their bed to smell like campfire. So uh, this is really interesting. They were just thrown into a fiery furnace and they don't even smell like fire. right? Last night I spent about two hours sitting around a fire that had two tiny logs on it that barely kept me warm. And my clothes, my hair, everything on me smelled like that fire. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See this turn of events? 
This is incredible, you guys. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. He's now preaching their gospel. He's like, they didn't obey me and look what happened. This is awesome. Blessed be their God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. See, this is the interesting thing apart about this. is now uh, He is now switching his allegiance, at least for the moment, right, to uh, from this statue that he created to their God that saved him from the fire. He saw this miracle take place. And, he, but, and yet he still has this disregard for human life. If anybody doesn't serve their God, he, he's going to be torn limb from limb. Forget about the fiery furnace. That didn't work, right? We're just going to tear their arms off. And their houses should be laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So, a couple things to point out. This is the third story in a row in the book of Daniel where we see faithfulness being exalted. Okay, We see faithfulness being exalted. But the interesting thing about this particular story is that they are exalted through an unbelievable trial. And yet, even as they came out of this um, unburned, can you imagine the feelings that were taking place and the fear that they were feeling as they were being literally bound and carried and thrown into this fire. An unbelievable trial that they went through to be exalted for their faithfulness. This, it, this is an example to us of, uh, of drawing lines in our identity and how we respond. We respond in quiet faithfulness. We respond in engagement, right? Not disengagement. We engage but we engage in such a way that makes it very clear where our, our allegiance lies. Right? We, a, a political engagement is not a bad thing. I don't want us to take away from this that we need to not pillage, engage, pillage. We need to not engage politically or in any other way. We engage, but we do so as followers of Jesus. The way we engage should make clear where our allegiance lies. It's very, very important. In Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah says this, and this is really important. This is really interesting. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego just lived this out. They walked through the fire with Jesus, literally, and were not burned. We were not burned. Our call, you guys, is to resist the identity politics. Okay, We're calling them identity politics, and that's what was happening in Daniel chapter 3. Okay, You worship. Um, we're not asked to bow down, but we're asked to, 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 to bow, in a sense, um, to a way of life in many ways that God would say, no. And so in many ways, as Christians, we're asked to to move against the cultural stream, not remove ourselves from it, but not allow it to take us away, to stand firm in many ways, move upstream, move against the current. We're asked to do that. We're engaging, but we're engaging without compromise. This is important. Willing to stand faithful, trusting in Jesus rather than men. This attitude even if he doesn't, right? They said he can save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, we're going to obey him instead of you. That's how important our allegiance to God is. Does God have all power? Yes. Is God able to deliver from trials? Absolutely. Does God always deliver from trials? No. And even in this case, he delivered them through the fire, not uh, away from the fire. It's important for us to remember this. Romans chapter 5 talks about this a lot. The purpose for trials is not always understood. I don't understand why all this stuff is happening right now. Um, why uh, people are getting sick and dying and why um, the response to those people being sick and dying is causing a ton of heartache. The economic uh, hardship that we're being faced as a culture and as a world has unbelievable 
consequences. Economic hardship, we can look at the markers that economic hardship always take with it, and they're devastating. They're devastating. We don't know why this is happening. We don't understand it, but we are simply asked to trust God. To draw the lines where we need to draw them. To make clear our allegiance to God. Job 13, 15, if you remember Job, right, is this rich man. And, and uh, there's this scene in heaven where Satan actually comes before God and, and God says, uh, have, have, check out my, my boy Job over here. He's faithful, blameless. And Satan says, yeah, that's only because uh, you watch over him and protect him and care for him. If you give him into my hand, let me handle him a little bit. He'll curse you to your face. And so God actually allows Satan to bring some unbelievable trials into Job's life. And in the end, in, in not, well, not in the end, in the middle of this, in chapter 13, Job says this, though he slay me. And it, when he says he, he's not referring to Satan, he's referring to God. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. We are not always preserved outside of trial. Sometimes God, sometimes God asks us to go through the trial. And he asks us to do it, trusting in him. And in times of trial, our attitude should be like those of these three men in Daniel chapter 3. That we will stand firm in the midst of it. Now, I said that I was going to go back to this idea that there were four men in the middle of this fire. And we're also, as we talk about that idea, we're also going to go back to the idea that we said we were created in the image of God. And so one of the reasons we're asked not to create images uh, and worship them is that we are the image of God and we worship the true God and we are above everything else. So uh, Colossians chapter one, in verse 13, Paul says this, he, he being God, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, so we've been removed from darkness and we've been uh, given citizenship in the kingdom of God, right? In whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So uh, the image of a son, right? Jesus, we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins, and we have gained citizenship in the kingdom of God through Jesus. He, he being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, Pause for a second. This is interesting because we just said, wait, I thought that we were created in the image of God. We were. Now, when it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, a couple of things it's pointing out, but here's what I want, here's where I want to focus. Through sin, our image bearing of God was broken. And so it's like looking in a broken mirror. The image that we see back is distorted, right? So Jesus, as the image of the invisible God, without sin, is the perfect image of God. Right? So there's the exception to this idea that there would be a, an image that we would bow down to other than God the Father. And that exception is Jesus, who is one with the Father and is also a human representation of God. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That means the most important, top dog, first and foremost, always preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus, the human person of Jesus. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we see all throughout the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, these carved images, uh, these things, these ways of life being worshipped. And yet we as Christians are asked to worship only one, Jesus. The image of the invisible God, whom in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the image of God that we worship, and only Him.
He is where our allegiance lies. He is the one that we follow. Rejecting all others. Focusing only on Him. So my invitation, my challenge, in the present time that we're living in, is to seek out ways to do that. Wrestle in your heart what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to have your allegiance tied to Him and to Him alone. And, how, and to examine how tightly we hold on to the, our identity as Americans versus how tightly we hold to our identity as Christians. Have we made them the same thing? These are hard questions to ask, but they're questions that we need to ask as believers. This, isn't a, like this is not an accusation against anyone or anything. This is, well, against anything it is, uh, but not against anyone. This is simply a challenge for us as a church and us as followers of Jesus to revisit this idea and ask the hard questions that we need to ask. Because I, I don't think for a minute that any one of you that's watching this, that you, as you gather at your families, um, want to make these wrong choices, want to, um, to sacrifice your faith in Christ for your faith in your national identity. But we, we do it slowly. It's a slow compromise. It's a slippery slope. And this chapter in our scriptures is simply inviting us um, to revisit that idea and maybe, and maybe realign ourselves with what we truly believe. I hope that you'll do that. As we worship right now, we're going to take communion. Again, one of the symbols of Christ that we have, the, the, the bread that represents His body that was broken for us, the, the juice that represents um, His blood that was poured out for us. And because we, we, we every week take this symbol of Christ, it's a way of, again, reminding ourselves of who He is and what He has done. Because of who He is and because of what He has done, He is preeminent. He is the most important, more important than anything else in our lives. So let's remember that today as we worship and as we, as we do this together. I love you guys. Let me pray for you real quick. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be in our hearts. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would work, that you would do your work, that as we are confronted with your words, as we are confronted with your scriptures, we are confronted with your truth, Father. That the sweet fruit of repentance would take place in us. Every one of us has made compromises in this way. Not one of us is innocent. God, we ask that you would bring us back to you. The ways that we have compromised, we ask that you would make our weak knees strong. Father, the ways that we have misrepresented you to the world around us out of fear of rejection or of reprisal, we ask that you would make us strong. Strengthen our faith, Lord Jesus, and give us the peace that you are preeminent, that you hold all the power, and that you can deliver us, and that you ultimately will deliver us, and that we will live forever with you in your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We love you, King Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Love you guys.